0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. If you're a regular listener to The Grapevine, you'd know that every now and then we'd like to venture beyond our own communities to hear about the situation and challenges facing people across the world. Today, we're going to head to Mexico and are going to focus on the work being done by an organisation to protect those who find themselves in vulnerable situations. Peace Brigades International is an NGO that works in a number of countries around the world to support what they term human rights defenders. They've been operating in Mexico for over 10 years and have helped to safeguard a whole range of people in some of the most trying circumstances. As you're probably aware, Mexico faces a significant problem with organised crime and has upwards of 20,000 people officially reported as missing. To get a better idea of the situation over there, we have Ricardo Neves on the line all the way from the state of Oaxaca, that's in Mexico's southeast. He's with Peace Brigades International. Ricardo, welcome to Triple R, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us.
1: Thank you, Billing, for inviting us and... Uh, 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 I'd like to greet everyone and hope you're interested in the work we're doing here.
0: And so, Peace Brigades International works with human rights defenders. What sorts of people um, typically do you work with and and what sorts of circumstances do they find themselves in?
1: Uh, We've been working with people uh, who are involved in very different issues. Uh, When we first arrived to Mexico 15 years ago, uh, we started working mostly on on situations of uh, a violent context which was called the dirty war in, in Guerrero, where uh many people mostly social activists were disappeared tortured and um protests and uh, human rights activism was was forbidden. So we started working mostly with organizations dealing with these sort of issues, uh, and, and then we moved on to a number of other issues, such as indigenous participation rights, the right to consultation, uh, eventually... Migration, mostly when we started working in the state of Oaxaca and then uh, subsequently also in the north of Mexico, close to the border with the U.S. And um, we've also been working um, somewhat transversely uh, in issues such as gender violence, uh, land and territory, business and human rights. And one of our major issues uh, nowadays has to do with uh, enforced disappearance, Um, And all all together a spectrum, let's say, of protection of human rights defenders. So we focus mostly on defending those who are directly dealing with victims, directly dealing with these issues, and we try to ensure that they have the space to, to go through with their work.
0: And w- what I'm particularly interested in is the way that Peace Brigades International works because you don't, to my knowledge, get directly involved in in the work that an activist might be doing but have kind of a, a principle of non-interference and non-intervention. Can you talk to us about, about that and how you kind of enact that principle?
1: I d- that's uh, a very clear understanding of what we do, I think. Um, I- indeed, we have three main principles, one of non-partisanship, one very fundamental basic to our existence which is non-violence and the third one is exactly the one you mentioned of non-interference so we work mostly through five working axes as we call it and the first one has to do with physical accompaniment and uh, we understand that this has a a potential of both dissuasion and persuasion what do i mean by that that when uh, a volunteer here, such as Louis, who is an Australian, is now working in Oaxaca, works alongside with the human rights defender was at risk. We understand that this raises the political cost of an attack, of an aggression of, against this defender. And so we're not really interfering with the work he's doing, with the issues he's working on. We're just working alongside and by simply doing so and acting as what has been called and our bodyguards. We expand uh, the space f- for for this defender to, to develop his or her work, and uh, we ensure his, his security in doing The, the other four axes of work also respect this principle of non-interference. One has to do with security workshops, which eventually have evolved also to security and advocacy workshops. Um, so we try to transfer competences or, or to increase the, the capacities of human rights defenders and organizations uh, with a set of tools uh, of security and protection, such as risk analyses, security protocols, uh, digital security programs, applications, and so on and also in devising uh, advocacy strategies. One interesting example was with uh, Paso del Norte Human Rights Center from Ciudad Juarez, an organization that works with uh, torture and enforced disappearances, um, with whom we, we organized uh, a, a workshop mostly focused on one particular case they had, uh, a case of a bomb car that was set up in, in Ciudad Juarez, and that led to the t- detention, to the arrest of uh, five young men who were being framed for, for for this crime and were disappeared for three days, tortured, and presented in the capital as the, um, the ones to blame for for, for this particular crime. So Paso del Norte, after this workshop and with the work we've done together, decided for the first time to to initiate dialogue with the Federal District Attorney's Office. Uh, So they held a number of meetings, uh, reached uh, the agreement that if torture would would be proven, the five young men would be released, and they eventually were. So this was uh, uh, rather... uh, positive for us to understand that if it hadn't been for this workshop, Paso Norte wouldn't have uh, undertaken this sort of dialogue with the District Attorney General and eventually uh, the five young men being released and uh, uh, and discharged of, of the accusations.
0: And, and so, so why, why have that principle of non-interference? Is it, is it so that, I suppose, those people who are advocating for their own human rights have that autonomy?
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that one, on the one hand, and that would be the, the main reason you know, for the existence of the principle. On the other hand, and, and very important when it comes to our advocacy work, uh, Mexico, as well as many other Latin American countries, have certain legislation that forbids foreigners from entering into political discussions and being politically active. Not complying with these sort of laws would lead to extradition. So we also have to bear that in mind.
0: And it's, I mean, to return to an earlier um, point you were talking about uh, in terms of peace brigades, international representatives and volunteers accompanying people so that they're not as at much risk or at least the the threat of violence isn't as high with that kind of support from a recognised body. Obviously, that the people you're dealing with are in um, very vulnerable situations, but also, I suppose, in in accompanying them with, with volunteers from different countries around the world, when you have those laws against political activism. How do you seek to ensure the safety both of the people you're working with, but also your own staff and volunteers?
1: Oh, that, that's a, a constant concern for, for us in, in Mexico and elsewhere where we work. And at first, it, for me personally, it was very interesting to see the way our Peace Brigades works. Um, we don't go anywhere where we feel that our volunteers are not safe and on the other hand, that we don't have this power or this possibility to dissuade attacks against the human rights defenders we accompany. Uh, Into deciding whether it is safe or not, we have certain protocols, certain procedures we follow. So we evaluate the context, we evaluate the relationships between the different actors, because normally we're talking about political interests, economic interests, social interests and history uh, between all of these actors and we have to understand whether we have the capacity to dissuade any sort of aggressions both against us and the human rights defenders we accompany. With PBI Mexico we've never had any serious attacks that were directed to, towards our work and uh, fortunately not against any of the human rights defenders we accompany so, so i kind of have to say let's knock on wood but uh so far we've managed to be rather successful on this risk analysis we do
0: if you've just joined us we are speaking with ricardo neves he's with peace brigades international and we're talking about all the work that the organization does in mexico to support human rights defenders um and and i noted ricardo that not too long after um, Peace Brigades International was set up in Mexico, there was what sort of loosely been termed the Mexico Drug Wars that were kind of initiated um, following the the election of President Felipe Calderon in 2006. What sort of impact has that had on the pursuit and, and challenges to safeguard human rights since then, and, and the work that you do?
1: Uh, I'm glad you asked that, Dylan. Indeed, it was a somewhat of a turning point for for the security situation in Mexico as a whole, and in particular to human rights defenders, and even more specifically to human rights defenders working with issues such as torture, disappearances, all these sort of issues that are connected to security, public security policies. Uh, Early this year, in, in January, as a matter of fact, we released a report asking whether Mexico was at peace, and the main conclusion was that Uh, This war on drugs indeed generated uh, a violent context for human rights defenders to work and led to an increase of human rights violations as a whole and particularly against human rights defenders. Uh, Since 2006, we've been working more and more on issues such as torture and uh, disappearances as a result of this uh, war on drugs policy. To, to give an example, today official numbers say that there are 20, 27,638 people missing. Mm. Uh, this number has increased terribly since 2006, and uh, another shocking number is that 2014, so we're talking two years ago, the, the, the last year where we had a, a final count, Mexico ranked third as the world's leading country in homicides. That means after Syria and Iraq, we're talking about countries which are in a declared war situation. But if we consider the numbers from 2007, and that's exactly after the beginning of the war on drugs you mentioned in 2006, Mexico would rank first ahead of iraq and afghanistan these are numbers that uh, are shocking uh, and yet true Uh, so so yeah i'd have to say that that the war on drugs did have a consequence on the general human rights situation in mexico and particularly when in the situation of security of human rights offenders
0: and um, we heard, I mean, the, we don't get a lot of news of, of Mexico here in Australia, but something that did reach the headlines and newspapers over here was the um, eventual capture of Al uh, Chapo Guzman, kind of a, a drug cartel kingpin in Mexico, and this followed his quite uh, monumental, I suppose, escape from a prison earlier that, that was uh, initiated by a, a ventilated tunnel um, which showed the level of, of complicity between some levels of the state and, and um, law enforcement and so on over there. But do, does the capture of someone such as El Chapo Guzman change the game at all?
1: Uh, it is a game-changer uh, in the social context in Mexico In the security context in Mexico, uh, because whenever such a a main kingpin, as you call it, is detained, arrested, uh, or eliminated, cartels have to readjust. And many organizations who study the issue of the war on drugs um, coincide in, in concluding that the detention of the heads of these cartels is not necessarily an answer to the violence that is generalised in Mexico. That has to do with uh, w- what has been called atomization of cartels. Because if you have a structure with only one leader and every single one of, of the elements in this structure are based to this one leader, let's say Chapo Guzman, uh, there are no or not many conflicts within this same structure. But once you lose the head, you, you lose your guidance, and the structure atomizes, generating micro-cartels, smaller, smaller groups, smaller gangs in some cases, which will be disputing territory that before was not in dispute. This will generally generate violence for the ordinary population. So that's one of the main elements that derives from arresting a major drug lord. Uh, and it's not the first thing that comes to mind you think okay so they've captured the the biggest criminal mind in 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 mexico things should get better not necessarily if you consider this hypothesis on the other hand the search for for chapa guzman which was for around six months has been documented by several organizations as the reason for violence being generated in some areas, particularly in the Sierra Taromara which is in northern Mexico, Mm. in the states of Sinaloa, Durango, and and Chihuahua, uh, where the main operatives by the army and the federal police to locate and arrest uh, Chapo Guzman have, according to several organizations, led to human rights abuses, abuse of public force, disappearances, and a huge number of internally displaced people. Uh, So that's another element to to bear in mind. Uh, And when you you ask about whether it is a game changer in the arrangements between cartels also there, it will generate also, let's say, a certain motivation or incentive for other cartels to dispute territory that beforehand was agreed or or was somewhat arranged uh, in a different
0: way. And, and what's, what's interesting and um, ultimately very sad for, for me is that I mean, this violence isn't just perpetrated you know, on an, and by people who are directly bound up in, in drug cartels and drug trafficking. There's a whole range of, um, as you mentioned earlier, human rights abuses going on in, in different areas owing to perhaps someone's gender, their profession and so on. And, and one example that I wanted to ask you about was the mass kidnapping in Iguala in 2014 whereby 43 students went missing, essentially, after kind of a confrontation with police. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that instance?
1: Certainly. So in September 26, 2014, uh, six people were killed, Uh, 43 students were disappeared, many others were assaulted, and in some cases by elements of public authorities from different levels. The truth is not yet clear. However, what was made clear just today, today this morning we had a, a press conference by the Argentinian group of forensic experts which dictated that the hypothesis put forth by the Federal District Attorney's Office that these forty three citizens have been burned in in a public dump was rejected by the forensic experts after a series of of examinations. So corroborating what had been also put forth by the um, interdisciplinary group of independent experts, which was mandated by the Inter-American Human Rights Commission to investigate the case. Uh, I mention all of these uh, somewhat bizarre details uh, to explain that the investigation from public authorities so far has produced very little, and uh, the truth is yet unknown for the families of these 43 students, and what is clear and what has been pointed out by all of these experts who are uh, supporting the investigation by the families is that there was a clear involvement of public authorities in the disappearances of the 43 students that night. On the one hand, it is proven that both state-level and municipal-level police were present during the disappearance of the 43 students, and investigations from these international groups have pointed to... A possible presence or at least acquiescence or knowledge of fact by the, the, the army which has a battalion in Iguala. These experts have requested to interrogate the military which is present there in Iguala, and this request has been categorically denied by the Mexican state so far. And this request has been backed by several international organizations, including the UN uh, Committee on Enforced Disappearances, that these investigators have access to these witnesses, which can be instrumental in, in finding out the truth of what happened that, that night. Uh, From PBI, we've backed this request from the families in several occasions with public statements, with recommendations to international delegations who visit the country and hold high-level meetings with Mexican authorities. But so far, this hasn't been possible. Mm. Uh, What is clear, and and going back to, to your question, was that there was a clear involvement of Mexican authorities in the disappearance Of these 43 students, the murder of six other people, uh, the torture of one student and... Police brutality against several of us.
0: Is there any idea of, of why that might have taken place? Um, I mean, I, I read that the students were en route to um, the, a commemoration of a, a massacre in 1968. It, would that have been, or had it had a role in the police and, and military intercepting the students?
1: I, I wouldn't like to. to come up with an hypothesis mm. myself because there have been different lines of investigation. Uh, one would would have to do with precisely the sort of work the, the students were doing at the time, the activism they they were conducting. However that hypothesis alone is rather unlikely that would be that it would be connected to the massacre of Tlatelolco in mm. in sixty eight. There are there have been other possibilities put forward. One had to do with one event that was going on in Iguala at the time, held by the first lady, uh, the uh, the wife of the municipal president, of the mayor of the city at the time. Uh, one other that people were pretty much fed up with uh, the activism of, of the students. Uh, I would like to mention that, back in 2011 during a, one other protest by these students two of them were were murdered in 2011 but a new or somewhat more recent line of investigation would have to do with the fifth bus which was not included in the initial report by the federal district attorney's office which might have been previously involved in in transporting drugs This can be a bit hard to understand, but the students would, uh, uh, as they say, capture buses so they could travel from one place to another. This is a very rather common practice in in Latin America, Mm. and they might have just gotten on the wrong bus. Uh, This was something put forth as an hypothesis by the group of international experts from the the Inter-American Commission. None of these possibilities has been demonstrated. Uh, what is clear was that there was an involvement of public authorities. It was clear that there was an involvement of organized crime. The motivation behind the attack may not be very clear now because we still haven't found them and their, their parents are still looking for them and hoping to find them alive. So until there are more details and some more concluding evidence, I wouldn't like uh, to, as PBI, come up with with an answer we don't have. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: We are speaking with Ricardo Neves. He's with Peace Brigades International. We're talking all about the work that they do in Mexico. And there was a law passed in 2012 uh, for the protection of human rights defenders and and journalists. How successful has this been, Ricardo?
1: Well, this law was a major a major step for for us. Uh, we've been working in the country from 2010, and from early on we've been lobbying for, for, for this bill to pass. Uh, finally, in 2012, as you said, uh, this law was passed and adopted, which created a mechanism for protection of human rights defenders and journalists. This law was, as I mentioned, a, a, a huge advance for the human rights situation in Mexico, and particularly for the security situation of human rights defenders. Nonetheless, the implementation of the law is still lacking some effectiveness. Many cases uh, have occurred of human rights defenders and journalists who were indeed beneficiaries of this law and have suffered attacks. Last year, 2015, one major case that made the, ha- the headlines to do with the murder with a a reporter from Veracruz who was pretty much on exile in in Mexico City and was murdered here along with uh, a woman human rights defender, Nadia Vera, and three other people despite having previously uh, petitioned to be a beneficiary of these measures. Another example has to do with something more recent with uh, an organization we accompany with, a company with in, in the state of Coahuila in the north of Mexico, the Juan Gerardi Human Rights Center, which have suffered a breaking into their offices recently, even though they are beneficiaries of this protection mechanism and measures of protection have been put in place, which, however, have not impeded the access by the perpetrators to their offices. However, I I would have to say that since a change in cabinet and uh, the entrance uh, of the new Undersecretary for Human Rights and the new head of this mechanism, dialogue with civil society has significantly improved. Mm. And even though there are still... Difficulties in the implementation of this mechanism, one of the major difficulties has to do with the lack of coordination between state and federal level authorities because many of these measures have to be put in place by state-level authority. So that will be our main issue in our lobbying activities throughout 2016.
0: And on top of that, I suppose there's um, you know interaction with the international community. I mean, the Merida initiative comes to mind, the cooperation between the US and Mexico to address drug trafficking. How much support is there from, from the international community in the work that you do?
1: We've we've been backed by the diplomatic corps, by international institutions such as the United Nations. We maintain advocacy constantly both in the U.S. with the Senate, the Congress, the Department of State, or with the European Union, with uh, External Action Service, uh, with uh, Ministries of Foreign Affairs of the different countries. So we're constantly in contact with major actors of the international community and their support has been fundamental to the work we do and to the work human rights defenders do. And taking on the the example you mentioned of the MERIDA Initiative, which was a cooperation agreement between Mexico and the U.S., uh, mostly focused on security. So we're talking about the the United States contributing to Mexico several millions of dollars to to purchase military equipment, weapons, tanks, jeeps, cars, whatever, in an effort to contribute to the war on drugs, which was actually based on U.S. policy, Mm -hmm. and to implement it also on this side of the border. For the first time in 2015, Uh, human rights clause, which is part of this agreement, which states that in case of Mexico not complying with respecting promotion of human rights uh, in the country, the Congress is entitled not to give in 15% of these funds. And even though the international community and several organizations amongst which PBI or the Washington office on Latin America I've been recommending for these 15% not to be handed over to Mexico due to reported human rights violations and to a lack of improvement of the human rights situation in the country. 2015, for the first time, these 15% were held by, by the U.S. So I think that here it was instrumental, the support of international community, of several U.S.-based organizations, and many others we work with in order to lobby for this pressure to, to result in an actual sanction to Mexico because it has to be understood as a sanction to Mexico.
0: And I just want to ask you briefly, Ricardo, to finish. Um, you're doing so much work and it seems like a massive undertaking uh, kind of working with a whole range of people uh, to make sure that they're um, as safe as they can possibly be in their circumstances. How do you measure success and, and remain optimistic that you're still making progress?
1: That, that's a, a very good question, so I, I'd ask to come up with a, with a specific example. We're we're, uh, soon going to release our annual report, and one of our case studies will be based on Tita Radia. Tita is the daughter of Rosendo Radia Pacheco. Uh, Rosendo was disappeared in the state of Guerrero uh, more than 30 years ago. And Tita, a humble indigenous woman, decided to undertake a huge, courageous struggle for Justice, which after many, many years struggling against Mexican authorities, eventually and with the support and accompaniment of PBI, led to to the, an access to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. This court decided that the Mexican state was to blame on the disappearance of her father on the hands of the military and sanctioned the Mexican state to recognize their guilt in the disappearance of Rosendo Rodilla, to repair the damage to the family, to put forward diligence to search for Rosendo or his remains, and instructed the state to put in practice a reform to the judicial system that would impede human rights violations committed by the military to be trialed under the military uh, judicial system and ordering them to be judged under the civil judicial system. This decision by the Inter-American Court on Human Rights was corroborated by Mexico's Supreme Court two years later, and this generated a huge reform to Mexicans' uh, judicial system. This started in a... In a small, small town in in Guerrero, with the courage and the bravery of a small indigenous woman called Tita Radilla, who decided to stop at nothing in order to achieve justice, not only for her father, for many others disappeared during the dirty war in Guerrero. PBI here was instrumental. Tita always referred to PBI volunteers as angels of peace. Uh, she always treated us very, very dearly. Very, she was always very caring towards us. Mm-hmm. And she mentioned more than once that her work wouldn't be possible without the presence of PBI, and that she wouldn't have had the security and the protection she needed to undertake all this work. The work was done by Tita. It was not done by PBI. The achievement is Tita's. What PBI did was ensure that she would have the space to be as brave as she always was.
0: Well, I think that's probably um, a nice optimistic note to finish on. Um, Ricardo, it's a monumentally important task uh, that you're doing over there, um, and of course, PBI more broadly. Good on you for doing it, and thank you so much for coming on Triple R today.
1: Now, thank you for the invitation, Dylan and Triple R, and uh, a big hug from Mexico to all of the listeners.
0: <laughs> Thanks, and then for more information about PBI, you can head to their website.
2: I suppose it's no surprise that most of our buildings and urban spaces and gardens have been designed by men in Australia but there are notable exceptions to this and it turns out we've forgotten many of the women who have been significant in designing our cities. Jane Joyce has really put a lifetime of research and work into writing a new book. It's called Places Women Make. She's an author and urbanist and she's celebrating the significant contributions of women to our urban landscapes and uh, she joins us by phone and it's it's really great to have you here, Jane. And uh, I learnt a lot reading your book, uh, and congratulations.
3: Thank you. It's wonderful to be um, to, to be talking about the book, having researched it and written it for many years.
2: <laughs> and so, so
0: what prompted you to write this book, Jane, about the influence women have had on Australian cities?
3: Well, I've had a really, um, I've been blessed with a very interesting career. I began it as an ABC news journalist. um, But in my 30s, I stood for the Adelaide City Council um, as a local resident and really concerned about the design of new architecture and heritage. And since then, I've worked across Australia with many sort of leading architects and realised that our cities, largely our public buildings have been designed by men. And then I worked out that there are actually a lot of women who've contributed enormously, but women don't always so readily share their stories. And that began my research.
2: And Uh, I suppose, I mean, one way of kind of breaking this down, because you've looked all over Australia, but you've been influenced by um, Jane Jacobs, who uh, is another Jane but has um, worked very much in this field. And I wonder what her influence on you has been.
3: Well, enormous in a way, and not just on me. Jane Jacobs, when she wrote um, The Death and Life of American Cities in the 60s, was campaigning to save Greenwich Village in New York from sort of freeways going through it, major development. And I use a little quote of hers at the beginning of the book, Designing a dream city is easy. Rebuilding a living one takes imagination. And so she influenced um, you know generations of urban designers but um, often working as I have been with women um, and young men in their 30s or or even you know 40 now they're not aware of her work and that um, you know she was a woman at a time it was unusual to hear a woman's voice in a planning decision-making meeting And that has changed, particularly many... I write about women who have changed our cities in many ways and some of them are politicians. In Melbourne, um, Leckie Ord... Was at, and Winston McCackie are two women who back in the early 90s really um, sort of pressed the button for the beginning of the remaking, the retaining of Melbourne's laneways. They didn't want new buildings built across what seemed to be a bit of free land that you could negotiate with the government to buy.
0: And it's interesting to me, um, Jane, you write in the book that um, perhaps owing to the influence of of Jane Jacobs and people like her, that in in the USA throughout kind of the mid-20th century, there seemed to be more or greater opportunities for for female architects, for example, than there have been in Australia at around about that time. And it's it's interesting that, you know, we kind of pride ourselves on being one of the first um, nations around the world to uh, give women the vote in the early um, 20th century, yet we seem to have been very slow um, to kind of allow women to enter certain professions that were previously seen as very much a man's domain.
3: No, you're absolutely right. It's interesting we were you know the the first place for women to have the right for, to stand for Parliament and to vote in in Adelaide, in South Australia, and Melbourne's Spea Goldstein was part of a network of women who were a long way apart at that time, you know in in Australia geographically, but they succeeded in that whereas um yes in the in architecture in the u.s um what happened uh, my research revealed was that men often went um to harvard or went to paris to study um at the ecole des beaux-arts they would study architecture but the women stayed home and i write about julia roberts who um in San Francisco and and outside of San Francisco was a woman architect who um, designed many magnificent buildings and in the um, sort of early 20th and late 19th century we don't have that here, a woman like that, to celebrate. Perhaps we have Marion, well we do have Marion Marnie Griffin who with Walter Burley Griffin um designed canberra but she also was an american but um yeah it is interesting but you know it's changing and i guess this book was written partly to inspire um younger people in the design professions but also anyone really to stand up for the the places that you want in your neighborhood um and and not wait for governments to give them to you.
2: Well, and, and I mean you you do spread spread the love between politicians and designers and and landscape architects and and gardeners and um, other significant women who have contributed. But um, uh, before we look at some projects in in Melbourne, I'd love to talk a little bit about Sydney because um, Lucy Turnbull was a very influential Lord Mayor and um, Clover Moore also. And I wonder um, what influence uh, women in those roles, particularly with with um, Sydney Council have had in, in shaping that city.
3: Well, I think um, enormous actually in the last um, probably it's 15 years. Um, Lucy Turnbull was generous enough to launch my book, and when she did, she actually spoke about growing up in Sydney and learning about Lachlan Macquarie, but not really learning about Elizabeth Macquarie. And I wrote about her contribution, which of, of places Mrs Macquarie's walk, which. Um, is still a really loved place in sydney it 's on the point around from the botanic gardens and visitors walk it and residents every day but coming back to the influence clover more I worked with and um, at the city developed the village plans which were, which were plans for small changes in each of the sort of inner city um, areas around the main street that have really transformed the quality of life in Sydney and equally her 2030 strategy, um, again I, I also worked um, with bridget smyce the city architect on that project she's a melbourne well melbourne-born architect working in sydney um i i think those major sort of projects um renewal of a lot of heritage places have really changed the inner city um, they've had immense you know they've had courage to push through in a way that they wanted the city to be shaped.
2: So that hasn't Um, been uncontroversial, has it?
3: No. Well, you know, when the cycle paths were first um, put into the city of Sydney, there was a lot of controversy. Um, The idea was a good one. There's since been, you know, some rearrangement. Some places they've been removed, other places they've been added. But, um, you know, it's a great... Bonus for people to be able to cycle. Um, the light rail um, line, which is now being delivered from Circular Quay up George Street down through to Central Station, um, and well, that was it took sort of years really for the City Council to um, encourage and, and try and get state government to support that and minister. It was a woman, Minister Gladys Berejiklian, um, really supported that as something Sydney needed and now it's been extended even further and will go out to the University of New South Wales. So women have a sort of practical um, eye, I think, at sort of looking at what will... If if cities, Lucy Turnbull is very interested in women-friendly cities, um, and it's an idea that if cities work for women and their children, they'll work for everyone. They'll have shade, they'll have seats, they might have public art and delight, they'll have good transport connections.
0: That's exactly uh, the, the point I was going to um, to ask you about, Jane. Because the, uh, from all the research you've done, is there that kind of common thread in what women throughout Australia's his- history have contributed to our cities?
3: Um, look, it's the hardest question to say. You know, are men and do men and women think differently? And I do explore um, that with a really eminent. Um, landscape architect Catherine Gustafson um, who designed the Diana Memorial in in London and she says in terms of design sensibility and I think she's right you know is there a female sensibility well possibly but men can have it too was her answer Um, but I think women are practical they are nurturers by nature um, whether or not they have children, um, there are many women as teachers who nurture in that way. Um, I think it's interesting, I write quite a, um, a number of stories about philanthropists um, and, you know, th- those are women who've thought about what can I give to, my, to the greater family of my community Um, And there are examples like Dame Merlin Meyer, who's um, inspired the idea of the Meyer Music Bowl. Um, Neil McGantner, another member of the Meyer family, um, supported generously the establishment of a pavilion for chamber music at Bermagui. And in Sydney, there's Judith Nilsson's White Rabbit Gallery. Um, In Adelaide, there's a new chamber um, music hall up in the Adelaide Hills called Naringa Arts that Ulrika Klein gave. So there is something about women's sort of, and and men do this too, but women are often quite determined and dogged to do things they imagine.
2: Yeah, it's interesting you um, mentioned Merlin Meyer because that my um, Music Bowl is um, the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl so yeah I think um, it's interesting to, to hear where the, where the drive for that project came from but I mean if we, we talk about I suppose a significant landmark in, in Melbourne which is an interesting one to talk about in the context of your book Jane is, um, is the Heidi um, Gallery and Museum and Grounds.
3: Yes, well, I, um, one of my favourite, I mean, the book was also to try and share some of my favourite places to visit, and I've always loved house museums, um, which give you a, a sort of an insight into the person who lived in the house, or the people who lived in the house, but but, um, Heidi was obviously Sunday and John Reed's. Um, idea when they came back from Europe, let's not live in Melbourne, let's um, live outside in the country and um, create a healthy life and grow our own vegetables and um, make Mediterranean food. And if you think of um, Melbourne at the time, it wasn't the cosmopolitan city that it is now. So they were, in a way, promoting a way of living. And I think um, it's lovely to see how Heidi today has really evolved. I mean, they evolved from an old house into a wonderful um modern 1960s i think it was house which is now a gallery and then there's been further development and it's still you know they've really given a very special place to melbourne and to australia and it's still a place of ideas and new ideas
2: and it's funny to think of it being a, the country house. <laughs> it so, is. So, it's so built up in that area. We're out of time, but there's just, just such a wealth of um, examples in this um, book, Place, Places Women Make. It's, um, it's written by Jane Jose. and Jane is an urbanist and author, and she's um, CEO of the Sydney Community Foundation. Uh, Community Foundation, sorry. And um, she has been our guest this morning on the Grapevine. And uh, if you have you know an interest in design and architecture, then this um, um, book is well worth a look, and um, yeah, we congratulate you on it, Jane, and thank you um, for being on Triple R this morning. Many thanks for, for um, a lovely conversation. Thank you, and um, and you can get the book; it's out through Wakefield Press. This has been a podcast from Three R one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at
1: rrr.org.au.